afternoon. My name is Brian Valentine. I, uh, I help out with the, the TULO certificate. I teach the, uh, the line tenure course. But more importantly, I'm sitting here with Bruce Thompson, who is the instructor for uh, another course, obviously the course that you students have signed up for in uh, environmental assessment and monitoring. And we're in the process of recording a series of podcasts. But before we get into the, the meat of the podcast, I thought we'd have Bruce tell us a little bit about himself, uh, a bit about his background, and how he came to be one of the instructors. Bruce. Thanks, Brian. My name again is Bruce Thompson, and uh, from an early age, I was always interested in the outdoors, in wildlife, and uh, just spending time watching wildlife and that sort of thing. I went to university and I studied honor science in what they called life sciences. And after that, I was looking around for what to do after college and I decided to do something a little bit different. And that was, I signed up to go to West Africa for two years. So that was a wonderful period. I worked on a disease called onchocerciasis, or river blindness, which was carried by black flies, which luckily I had, uh, had worked on during my uh, summers when I was going to college in Algonquin Park in Ontario. So I had ended up staying there in two countries for five years, Ghana and Cameroon. And after five years, I came back and did a master's in ecology and physiology, and then went on to work on a PhD in Newfoundland. Uh, after I finished that, I began work with the Newfoundland and Labrador government, and we were looking at environmental impact assessment in some of the early days of it, writing the regulations for it. After that, I moved out west to Edmonton to take a job with Environment Canada. And while I was there, I got involved in many things, environmental assessment and compliance and enforcement and monitoring of uh, federal projects and responsibilities. After a while, I decided to do something different again and went and worked for a company in the private sector. And as I was there, I got a lot of requests from First Nations and uh, other Indigenous communities to set up a, an education or capacity building program so that uh, this would provide technical expertise and knowledge of the, the federal re and provincial re regulations for First Nations communities. And in 1998, I set up my own consulting practice to, to do this. I did some work in some developing countries again, but and did some uh, studies in urban development, in environmental mitigation and monitoring, but most of all I spent time developing programs for capacity building, for monitoring and environmental assessment for First Nations in northern Alberta, in northeastern BC, and also across Canada under the uh, Indian and Northern Affairs, as it was then called. Thanks, Bruce. That's a, uh, a brilliant uh, resume or a brilliant summary of, of, um, of your experience, your expertise. Uh, I should point out that I, I first 
met Bruce, and we became friends about 15 years ago when we were both working on a, on a project in northeastern Brazil, in Olinda and Acife, uh, looking at informal communities. So I can attest to Bruce's uh, expertise in this area and his empathy uh, with indigenous peoples uh, generally. I think now it might be a good point to, uh, to move on from those introductory comments and get into the meat of podcast one, which is on valued ecosystem components and environmental impacts. And we're going to do this in a, in a fairly informal manner, just as though we're having a conversation, which, which in fact is what we are having. And I'll start by, by asking Bruce to tell us a little bit about uh, what a valued ecosystem component is. It goes by the acronym VEC. Bruce? Yeah, thanks, Brian. A valued ecosystem component is part of the environment. And we should look at, when we do an environmental impact assessment, we should look at all parts of the environment. But some parts are more important than others. And some parts of it might be critical to some people and less so to others. So to focus the environmental impact assessment, the first step is to choose what valued ecosystem components are that we're going to uh, concentrate on. And that would uh, take place in the existing environment part of a EIA or environmental impact assessment. So if I hear you correctly, we should include all parts of the environment in our assessment, but perhaps focus on some, uh, some more than others. Is that a fair assessment? That's right. So for example, for a uh, First Nation community in northeastern eastern, uh, BC, uh, patch of blueberries might be very important because it's not just for food necessarily, it might be a cultural and traditional practice to go and pick the blueberries at a certain time of year and it builds and maintains the culture. Th that's an excellent example. Are there any other examples or, or categories uh, of or criteria that would make something a VEC, make something a valued ecosystem component? And I'm thinking maybe ecological importance or legal importance? Yeah, um, the way I look at it, uh, and I would say most uh, assessors, scientists would look at it, is there's at least four ways that a valued ecosystem component could be important to a particular community. The first one is ecological importance. So there we might be talking about a rare or endangered species or an indicator species, an indicator perhaps of, of climate change. There might be a critical habitat like uh, a large wetland that would be of great eco ecological importance because of the diversity of wildlife and plants and its role in the, the watershed. The second thing that I would look at is the legal importance. So that, uh, for example, uh, a migratory bird, under the Migratory Birds Convention Act, which is a federal act, it's uh, an, an offense to disturb or remove the nest of a migratory bird. And that, in this part of the world includes just about all of the birds. Like, uh, likewise, if, if a um, part of the fisheries habitat in a, a fish-bearing watercourse is disturbed or some substance that's offensive to fish is put into it, then it will be a, a contravention of the Federal Fisheries Act. So that could lead 
to legal actions such as fines. The third area is it, if it's of political or community importance. So some parts of the environment are important for these reasons. So that, for example, uh, a proposed project may not be appropriate for the existing land use zone, like forest harvesting in an area that's used for traditional purposes, or siting a waste landfill next to a residential area where odors and aesthetic disturbances could be of concern. And fourthly, a valued ecosystem component could be important because of social, traditional, or historical importance. So, uh, for example, there might be buried archaeological artifacts, which would be a problem if a site was to be cleared or excavated or a pipeline built through it, and threats to uh, lifestyle, health and safety, livelihood, or recreation and even education. I, I know that uh, Indigenous knowledge, or sometimes known as TEK, traditional ecological knowledge, is an important tool. I think we'll be talking about this in a later podcast. That's right. Before we move on from this point, though, I, I do have a couple of questions. Uh, you mentioned early, uh, 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 just a few seconds ago, something about indicator species, uh, that they may be ecologically important. Could you elaborate just a little bit as to what you mean by that? Indicator species would be species of wildlife or even of plants, which are very sensitive to environmental change. So, for example, the uh, population of moose or deer could be a good indication of what's happening in the terrestrial food chain with the vegetation and the purity of the environment. It doesn't need to be a big animal. It could be an insect in a watercourse, for example, that is used, like, uh, for example, for small minnows that are eaten by larger fish, and those fish are eaten by uh, birds like heron or eagle, that uh, a change in the middle population could translate into a change in a whole bunch of other species which are even more visible. Uh, so it's sort of a, a play it forward uh, notion that uh, we have to be cognizant of each of these species and also the relationship with other species in that in the environment. That's right and indigenous knowledge is very important because it takes a holistic view of the world, not just an individual species, but it looks how uh, different species of wildlife and plants interact with one another. Similarly, uh, the, uh, the water cycle, because as we know, water bodies like lakes and creeks are tightly linked to the underground water, groundwater, and also to the water in the atmosphere. They're all linked into the water cycle. So indigenous knowledge looks at that and also that uh, indigenous knowledge looks back over many generations, where most scientific studies maybe have one or two years of baseline data to work on. So what, what we're talking about really is an alliance between the, the knowledge provided by the indigenous community, elders and others, and the, uh, the expertise that uh, environment, environmental scientists can bring to bear. That, that's right. So far, we've been focusing on the biophysical environment. You've mentioned things like watercourses and air and soils and vegetation. Are there other environmental values that we should keep in mind? Yes, there are. And those fall into the what we could call the socioeconomic area, but they're very important in environmental impact assessment. So I'll give a few examples. Uh, for example, transportation and road safety. 
So, for example, there might be a new waste management facility developed for a community that might translate into a new entry point and intersection for the road leading out of it. And that would affect, affect uh, transportation safety, especially if there's something like a school beside it. So that has to be considered in the EIA as well. Visual quality is something that isn't always included in EIA, but should be. So for example, if a mountain peak, a very scenic mountain peak, is uh, removed during a, a coal mining operation or something, it changes the visual quality, and that may be very important in a traditional sense. Um, the elders might uh, hold that as very important, but when it's removed, it would lose some of its visual quality. Another thing is uh, we all know that noise affects people, and uh, vibration as well, like heavy machinery. So I remember once in Africa, in Uganda, I did an EIA on a large program, and one of the reports that came out of the villages was that uh, certain snakes were disturbed by not noises that we could hear, but by vibrations hmm. of heavy vehicles through the, through, through the land. I, I'm, I was intrigued by your reference to mountain peaks of spiritual importance. Uh, I know that's certainly true in, in New Zealand. Mount Taranaki, which is a, a classic volcano mountain on the North Island, is reputed to have had, a, in Maori mythology, to have a, had a falling out with its sisters and brothers in the central part of the North Island and then was sort of shunned, was pushed to the west. So it has much spiritual importance to the uh, indigenous people there. So Bruce, to conclude this, this first podcast for the students, can you tell us about any other uh, things that we don't always consider as part of the environment, but that we should. Yeah, so uh, noise is a big one in my experience. So I was uh, doing an environmental study of a major landfill, waste landfill operation uh, south of Edmonton. And uh, I looked at the vegetation, I looked at the wildlife habitat, I looked at uh, the soil and everything like that. And then when I started to talk to the uh, residents, which of course we should always do in an environmental impact assessment. The reports I got back were not really about the water and the air and the soil and the wildlife. They boiled down to the noise of the machinery, not only during construction period, but during the operation period. And I said, well, what, what noise would travel in a, from a waste landfill mm -hmm. at night? And they said, uh, they need machinery to compact the waste and to cover uh, every several nights and when the vehicles back up they make a beeping sound mm -hmm. and that was it keeping their kids awake at night so that was uh, that was the biggest impact that I recorded for that that project not the only one but the the most major one that was talked about and another one that sometimes people miss is when a project goes into an area and it puts a demand on natural and other resources so examples there would be the load of electricity required. Is that going to blow up the system? Uh, the demand for water, or a particular kind of water, or the demand for fuel, and the list goes on. But all of these things, suffice to say, should be considered in the uh, existing environment and in the assessment of impacts in the environmental impact assessment. And I know that when when you come to do the, uh, the formal teaching, the, the, the formal lecturing, albeit at a distance, you'll be talking about some other things that we don't always consider, things that are often introduced into remote communities 
either during periods of construction or development or afterwards. So, so students think of this as sim simply a, an appetizer or a precursor to what you're going to get. And I think at that point we're going to, at this point we're going to wrap up uh, podcast one. It's uh, it's only half of the first topic, but given that it's a complex topic and we had some introductory stuff, uh, we'll wrap it up here. And the next podcast we'll start off looking at environmental impacts. Thank you.